Hello, friends. My name's Tammy Simon, and I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I want to welcome you to the Sounds True podcast, Insights at the Edge. I also want to take a moment to introduce you to Sounds True's new membership community and digital platform. It's called Sounds True One. Sounds True One features original, premium, transformational docu-series, community events, classes to start your day and relax in the evening, special weekly live shows, including a video version of Insights at the Edge with an after-show community question and answer session with featured guests. I hope you'll come join us, explore, come have fun with us, and connect with others. You can learn more at join.soundstrue.com. I also want to take a moment and introduce you to the Sounds True Foundation, our nonprofit that creates equitable access to transformational tools and teachings. You can learn more at soundstruefoundation.org. And in advance, thank you for your support. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, we have with us a beloved poet, storyteller, spiritual teacher, and friend, Mark Nepo. Let me tell you a little bit about Mark. He's been called, you ready for this? One of the finest spiritual guides of our time. And I think it's true. In his 30s, Mark was diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma, a struggle which helped to form his philosophy of experiencing life fully while staying in relationship to an unknowable future. Mark's the author of more than 20 books and 16 audio projects, many with Sounds True. He's the author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Book of Awakening, and he's now released a new collection of his poetry. It's called The Half-Life of Angels, three books of poems, and we're here celebrating the release of The Half-Life of Angels. And with that, Mark, welcome. Thank you, Tammy. It's so wonderful to be with you. Um, I'm so excited about, I remember a few years ago talking to you about when this was first starting to percolate in me to put this book together. <clears throat> and though I've published so many books, been blessed, I really feel close to this one. This, I have to say, really... Mark, you say that you say that about every one <laughs> of, your, of your book children. And fair enough, fair enough. And for, for good reason. And, you know, you have such a special gift at coming up with titles for your work. I love the titles. And I'm curious to know, one, how you come up with the title, and then tell us a bit about this title, The Half-Life yeah. of Angels. So the titles are very intuitive. You know, after I've been in relationship with whatever the book is about, um, at some point an image or a feeling, something will just kind of ring more true than everything else. And it's almost like finding an anchor. And I know that's it. I, I, and, and with this one, this came before I had any sense of what it meant. <laughs> I just knew the half-life of angels, that, that was it. And as I finished putting the book together, I realized it's, and, and this is so much what the poems are for me. They, they ring true, and then they become my teachers. 
and I have to stay in relationship to understand what it is I am to learn. And, and I've discovered more as I go on that this creative process is really the introspective process. I just happen to write it down. So, so the half-life of angels is really that, that spark of becoming of spirit, you know, and, and we know the traditional, uh, God and Adam and Michelangelo on the Sistine Chapel, that little space, it's like the, the synapse of spirit that sparks between of life force between all things. That's kind of the half-life of angels. And so all, all the poems in, in these three books, in this one volume, explore and affirm that mysterious spark of becoming. Now, now, Mark, you said something really interesting that, you know, you received the title, if you will, and you weren't even sure what it meant when it first came to you. And I had a moment of like, what? What? So he's like <laughs> writing like a scribe. And, you know, I think people have different explanations for this kind of thing. Like if they're engaging in some kind of automatic writing or something like that. And some people say, oh, that was a guide. It was outside of me. I didn't even know what it was. But you don't really use that language how do you understand no. it like you received a title you know you didn't create it from your sort of discursive right. mind something else was happening so i feel like for me i'm not channeling but i am not the sole creator either that it's all about relationship i am in relationship through my authenticity with everything that's not me and, and I feel like this has taught me in, in my own life that our authenticity is how, is how we clean out the conduit of who we are so we can connect with spirit and with others. And so I, I like to say I retrieve poems and books. I'm not channeling. I'm not a blank conduit. But but I'm not the you know, this is the fallacy of, of the West is, you know, we want to be little gods. Oh, I created out of nothing. Well, I'm, it's not that either <laughs> that through this relationship, I am open enough. I, another kind of image that comes to me is like an inlet. You know, that the greater water flows through an inlet and then it can irrigate the land on the land side of the inlet. Well, if, if that inlet is blocked with debris and stones, nothing gets through. And our authenticity cleans out the inlet that is us, each soul. And then we are informed by the rest of life and we grow for it. Now, this notion of our authenticity. That's what's meeting everything that's not me. That's what you said. And at a moment, like, what does that mean exactly? It's my authenticity. Like, how do I know that I'm resting in my quote unquote authenticity or being? Well, and my it makes me think uh, when you use the word rest, it makes me think of in the Buddhist sense, the Buddhist sense of faith. I think the word is sadha, which means resting the heart in what is true. So when I, what does that mean for me? So that means for me that I try to move at the pace of what is real. 
I try and being authentic to me means being true to the full range of my feelings, whatever that might be. I might be afraid. I might be confused. I might be in pain, but when I'm truthful about it, that connects me like a root going into the soil. It connects me to the rest of life. And then I get strength from that and I get clarity from that. And if I am not authentic, um, I, I get clogged up. I, I mean, it's also interesting that in, in the ancient Chinese, the word, the closest word to try to translate for sin is not evil. It's opaqueness that it's when we're blocked from seeing or blocked from being true. And so the way, you know, our being an authentic also from the Greek, it means the mark of the hands. So being authentic is how the heart comes into the hands, how inner comes into the world, how, you know, if I love you and you fall down in front of me, well, I'm trying to make, prevent your fall or pick you up. And so what's in here comes out here. And that's being uh, congruent. I'm not just saying I love you. When you fall, I'm showing I love you. The mark of the hands. hands. I, find that, I find that so beautiful. Mark Nepo, that's so beautiful. And in coming to our conversation, I realized the question I really wanted to ask you about, yes, I want to hear and have our listeners hear some of the gorgeous poetry in the half-life of angels. And also I want to talk more about the process of writing poetry for you. But the question that lived in my heart in coming to this conversation has to do with the heart. And what I wanted to know is, how do you return to your heart and deepen your sense of residing in the heart when you find yourself outside of that experience? Because you're talking here about the heart flowing through our hands. And I think yeah. this is what I feel in you and your work. And just to say a little bit more, you know, sometimes people are authentic, but there doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of heart in it. Meaning they're authentic, mm -hmm. they're like just telling you what the heck's going on and they're venting and all of this. And But there's something different about this quality of heart flowing through the hands. And that's what I want to hear more about. Yeah. So I feel like I, I have learned, and, and I could say it this way, that that mysteriously there's been a handful of times in my life, like all of us, when my heart's been shattered, when and I had no idea how I was going to move forward or how it would be put back together. And I was sharing, I recently turned 72. So, so far, maybe it'll be different next time, but so far I can report mysteriously every time, not only has my heart come back together, it's been larger, stronger, gentler, and more loving. Now I don't exactly know how that works, but I am a student, a lifelong student of that mystery. And I think that, so now to me, I think all of us, you know, the, the, the harshness of life pushes us away. You know, fear and pain make us tighten. 
And then whatever our practice is, our job then is to open when we tighten and to lean in when we're pushed back. And so there is a powerful beauty in admitting the truth of whatever I'm going through, even if I'm in pain, that opens up my heart again. You know, when I, if I'm sad and I refuse it, things get worse. And if I say, oh, I don't want to be sad. Well, mostly that's happened because I already am. <laughs> and so I need to admit it. And the word admit isn't both means to confess or acknowledge, but it also means let in, admit. So when, when I am truthful about my feelings, I am not only acknowledging the beauty of what is, even if it's difficult, but then I'm also letting in other life. And so that, so when I am confused or troubled or in any way, because I think we all move because we're human, I'm committed to being wholehearted. And of course, there are times I'm half-hearted. I commit to being centered. And of course, there's times I'm off-centered. So, so much of the heart helps us return. So, so much of any practice to me is a practice of return. And so, if I'm confused, I'm sitting here in my study, then I, or I'm in pain or in fear, I try to hold nothing back, open my heart and give my heart's attention to the nearest piece of life until it becomes my teacher. And that always makes me more intimate with life and it connects me to more resources. So, so Mark, tell me about that. Putting your attention on the nearest piece of life. Are, are you saying like the nearest piece of life? Yeah, could I'm be sort of like the... a fly on the window. Okay. Like, or, the, or the leaf outside here on this tree that's just starting to bud because it's spring. Or all of a sudden, Zuzu, you know, my dog is here and I'm, and I'm stuck looking at her golden lashes for five minutes. <laughs> you know, so whatever it might be, and this goes to the that synapse, that, that spark of becoming, the half-life of angels that that's a, a placeholder for, is when we are authentic and our heart is open, it's like when wires connect and then electricity comes through. That's how we connect to the, the network of life force that flows through all relationship, all relationship. And we can find these things in the, in the, in the simplest, the simplest places. You know, I was just mentioning, this is a quick story that when we, when I was recently at the modern elder Academy down in Mexico, this wonderful place. And just before the retreat started in the morning, it was starting at night. I was walking on the beach and one of the participants was walking it. And she came over and, um, and she said, I know we're not starting. I don't want to intrude. Could, could we, can I ask you something? I said, sure, sure. She said, well, I, this thing just happened on the beach. And 
I don't know how to feel about it, which I love that that was her, I don't know how to feel about it. You know, like that's a beautiful openness. And here's this piece of life that give our attention. So she was walking on the beach and there was a sizable fish that had been washed up on the surf. And she was like, I, you know, can I save it? And if I don't, will it just become part of the food chain? And, uh, and she found a piece of driftwood. She put it back in the syrup and she walked another five minutes and there was another one. And she said, I don't know how to feel about this. And so there's an example of a piece of life giving your attention fully. And then she reached in relationship to another and together we explored it. And what came from that exploration from, from my heart was, you know, optimists or idealists say, we got to save every fish. And pessimists say, you're not going to save every fish. So why bother? But I think the beauty of this spark of becoming of this commitment to life is we're not here to save every fish and we're not here to turn away. We're here to save the one fish in front of us and keep going. You know, Mark, in terms of the process of receiving poems, how does that relate to giving your full attention to something in the environment that's calling to you? What's the connection there? Well, the connection is, and this goes back to, you know, you, you know that, that um, in my 30s, I almost died from a rare form of lymphoma. And one of the great gifts from, from surviving and still being here um, was that I was given the lens of the miraculous. So, you know, as a young writer, young artists, we're all taught, be on the look for good material. Will this make a good story? Will this be clever? Will this be insightful enough? Well, after almost dying and still being here, I don't have to look for good material. Everything's miraculous. If my heart is open enough and I'm present enough to receive it. So we all have, you know, Abraham Maslow talked about peak moments. We all have these moments that glow. Well, everything is always emanating spirit. We're seldom in a place where we're still enough, long enough to say, oh, my God. Look what's. This look what's happening. So in terms of receiving or retrieving or being aware of what of what's worth putting words to, um, I have to all I have to do is still myself. And this is where meditation practices and the creative process are, are very much akin. You know, I mean, I, I before I knew about meditation, I think I was meditating, but I was just taking notes, even though we're supposed to drop all thought. And because when I was in that alive space, things presented themselves that I, in wonder, was bearing witness to. And wanting to have a trail that I could, because most of those moments are very ephemeral. So, you know, when I was a young man, I wrote because uh, I'd see something, I'd go, oh, my God, and it was gone. And I'd say, well, wait a minute, I, I didn't get it. Like, wait, a, I, you know, so I would do a word picture of it so I could have it to be with it longer. 
And so I could be with it and be in relationship with it. So, so, and th this, so, so if we are receiving what's before us, this changes the notion of revision. You know, we think of revision, all writers and, and, and other artists talk about that crafting thing in different ways, but it's the same process of honing things, pruning language, making it economical and, you know, clear. Well, that's fine. But I've, in the way that we're talking, I've understood revision as going back and looking again at the original vision. Revision, because if now, if, if I write something and it doesn't, it needs a lot of work, before I put all that work in, I go, you know what? I wasn't present enough or open-hearted enough. Let me go back and try it again. Because the closer I am to being clear and open-hearted, the less I have to mess with the words. Now, in the context of the Half-Life of Angels, this collection of poems, what was it like for you, Mark? Here you are, you mentioned at 72, you're looking back at decades of writing and you're selecting hundreds to go into this volume. My understanding is that this is the first of a multi-volume series of yes. looking back at your, how did you know, especially with this notion about revisioning, oh, this yeah. poem needs to be revisioned. I'm not going to include it, or I'm going to rewrite it. Or how, how did you sort through all that? Well, it was very interesting because, and, and, after all these years, it was very clear what was worth keeping and what wasn't. Very clear. Like, you know, and, and so the way to one way that I noticed was like, uh, you know, especially when we're young, um, it'd be like I'd be diving in the deep and want to bring up a treasure. And of course, whatever I brought up, I thought was so special. I, I didn't want to let, you know, let any of it go. But now all these years later, I can see, oh, Here's the gem, but there's a seaweed around it and a tire. And actually, I don't need all that. <laughs> it's just the gem. And so it was very clear. You know, my, my new guidance for writers is just wait 20 or 30 years. It becomes very clear. But the other thing that so one of the things I was committed to in all of this is I do not want to revise my earlier work to make it look like I've always seen and known what I see and know now. I want to be faithful to the evolution of a of a spirit in a in a body in a life on earth. And so I want to bring my skill to be make what I saw then as truthful as possible, but not to alter it. Because I think, you know, it's not that who I was, we all experienced this. Who I was 20 years ago, I was as truthful as far as I could see and be. So it wasn't now that I see more and feel more, it's not that that was false, it was partial. And now it's like concentric circles, it's grown. And so it's being as truthful with each circle as possible. And so that the natural growth is visible. And I think the other noticeable thing, which was so interesting, 
and I don't know where this shift happened, but earlier it was like I would dive down and want to bring something up from the deep to share. But somewhere along the way, I live in the deep now. And so I no longer bring things up. I invite you to come down and see it with me. And that's change. And not, not, one isn't better than the other, but that's, that's, uh, there's a very different tone in like the poems in this book are from my 50s and 60s. And so in the last 20 years, that's a very different tone of speaking and living from the deep than going diving and coming up. You know, I wanted to um, read uh, one thing that you wrote about this new collection, The Half-Life of Angels. You write, I confess that reading through 45 years of poems has been like stepping through holy sites and ruins in order to map the learnings of all of my former selves. And the part that I wanted to pull out and talk about is this notion of our former selves. And I think sometimes we have this idea that, you know, I'm critical of my former self, or I don't even know where the line stopped between my former self and my current self. And so I'm just curious how, through this process of sorting through 45 years of poetry, have you developed a relationship with your former self that you think is holding uh, a becoming spirit, if you will? Yeah. So I think, and I think that's a wonderful question. And, and I think it really pertains to all of us. I, it just, I just happen to experience it through the trail of all my writings. But I think that I remember uh there was a rabbi, Jonathan Omerman, and I'll never forget his definition of integrity was to stay true to the play, to a voice inside that doesn't change, though the life that carries it will. And so I think there is an abiding voice within us, whatever we call that, soul, Atman, Dharma nature, whatever we call that. And, and of course, the life that carries it does change. And so my so a key moment when I started to understand the evolution of self was, was after my cancer journey, because before my cancer journey, I was a driven young artist. And I was so glad to still be here, of course. But afterwards, it was very confusing because I lost my drive. And I thought, where's my gift? And it took me several months, almost a year, to start to acclimate and realize I was no longer driven. I was now drawn to things. And there was a greater freedom in that. And what it so that changed that my identity before the cancer journey was poet with a capital P. But afterwards, it was very confusing because it didn't fit. The, per, the spirit I am would not be contained by that identity. My means of seeing and perceiving is always a poet, but it serves this unnameable spirit inside. And so the image that came to me of a self growing is it's like a potted plant 
we all know that if you take care of a potted plant, you have to repot it because it grows. If you don't, its roots will uh, get all, you know, root bound and it'll die. It'll suffocate and die. So my initial self of, of poet with a capital P identity, this transformative process of almost dying, which caused me to be more authentic and raw, I needed to repot myself. I needed to break the, the pot with the capital P poet. And it was a bigger pot that was, I don't know, spirit, something that used poetry. And so I think that we, the, you know, it's like with a butterfly, when a cocoon, when a butterfly emerges from the cocoon, it doesn't mean the cocoon was false. It means it served its purpose. And so I think we are blessed to go through many cocoons, through many pots, if you will, as our life evolves, as our spirit evolves. And it's, it's the thread or that voice that doesn't change, that connects everything. You know, Mark, when I, when I, yeah, when I hear you talk about that notion of staying true and that there are times when we know the pot, it's changing. We may not even be like, it's just, we can feel it's happening. Sometimes it's like, I'm going to make a choice and do this. And other times it's like, oh my God, the pot just broke. And here we are either, but you know, it can be so terribly uncomfortable and difficult and even, you know, feel like a type of dissolution and like things are going wrong, not that things are evolving in some positive good direction. And I wonder what you have to say to people who are in that state. Like, you know, I want to stay true. And yet, oh my God, this is really asking a whole lot of me right now. Well, I, I think two things come to me that have been helpful to me. One, one is um, Rilke had this beautiful of many things, of course, he said so many beautiful things, but he said, let everything in, beauty and terror, no one feeling is final, keep going, keep going. And so this brings up that the notion, which we all know, um, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, the, the great lesson of impermanence. And of course, we all think, oh, that means we're all going to die and we will, but not today, hopefully. And, but, but the gift of that within a life is impermanence. Nothing, nothing stays the same. The difficulty, the frustration, what feels like paralysis, what feels like being stuck. Yes, it is. And we have to honor what that feels like. Keep going keep going, nothing stays the same. And there is a, I think there is an added suffering that comes from resisting suffering. And so how do we, and often, I mean, uh, we need each other to get through these, these difficult moments, you know, so rather than, it's natural to, you know, say, oh, God, I don't want to go through this. And then we got to, you know, like, uh, then we got to reach to each other and say, well, help me through this. 
All right, Mark, let us receive the good medicine of the half-life of angels. You know, when this book first came in the mail, I started thumbing through and reading different poems and marking them and thinking, I'm going to have Mark read that poem when we talk to each other. And then I'm going to have Mark read that poem, that poem. And then just the other day, I said, Tammy, why don't you start at the beginning of the book and see what that's like? And I did. And I had a terrific journey with the first few poems. So I wonder, as a gift to our listeners, can we just start there? Will you read the first oh, few poems? Oh, a joy. Sure. So this poem, which is kind of the prologue poem for the entire volume, is called The Heart is Still Our Teacher. The old world is gone, and still one candle can light many. If we work with what we're giving and resist the suffering in not suffering. The daily work is to remember that you can't fly with one wing. During adversity, we finally accept that our kinship is to meet below all names. No matter how we stray, we are taught by the rush of life that in the thick of it, we are always moving toward a greater sense of living. It is the blessing of the ordinary that awakens us to everything. And this poem, which is the beginning of the first book in here, like it or not, suffering is the bow that plays the heart. It makes me ache in a place I knew before birth, a place we share but only access when alone. If we accept the rub, we can hold each other up to all that life offers. Perhaps this is the purpose of suffering, to let music rise. In time, our suffering sinks like a stone plopped in a lake, changing everything, though it is never seen again. Changing everything, though it is never seen again. So that's a good example, like I, following the truth of that feeling, I didn't know that it was going to, that poem was going to end up with the image of the suffering like a stone in the lake. That, so that was the reward for being true to the feeling. And that's why I say that that's, you know, I write it down and that becomes a creative process. But that's the introspective process that reward. If we're true to our feelings, we will be rewarded with an insight that will will help us live. This poem is called "Close." Often, what matters doesn't reach us until the crisis is over. How close we were to life or death makes us tremble weeks later while watching a goldfinch eat from the feeder. Then we wonder what we're doing and if it's worth all we've put on hold. Is anything worth this moment asking to be entered the way a waterfall is asked to find its ledge? And so the instruction of that poem for me was, yeah, we, you know, if we're true, we, we, We've got to make the leap like a waterfall 
the waterfall doesn't hesitate. <laughs> it, it, it flows over. It does it. That's what makes it a waterfall. This is called depth. There's just a few more here to open the book. This is depth finder. While we marvel at the dolphin or whale breaking surface, this great leap is followed by a great surrender back into what no one can see. These surges of power are always followed by a letting go. Like the whale, we are never done. Like the dolphin, we nose our way into the world only to plummet back into the deep. Oh, and this one, you know, this is called the art of netting, making the word net into a verb, N-E-T, netting. And, and this really came because I so believe in, as you know, Tammy, in friendship and, and being there for each other. And so this came because I have a dear, dear friend who years ago helped save my life from cancer. And, and in the last year, he lost his wife very suddenly, and he's just been devastated. And and I'm there for him. I want to be, and and it's bringing us closer. And and so I have a, a group of friends here, male friends who are a men's group that we've been in together for 15 years. They know of my friend Paul, but they don't know him. They know him through me. So while I'm helping Paul, they're helping me as they see how what what holding Paul is affecting me, they're holding me. And that's what gave me this sense of netting. So the poem is The Art of Netting. This, this is how it works. I almost die. You're at my side. It's hard on you. And so your friend is at your side. Next month or year, it's you who falls into the crater. Then I'm there for you and my old friend is there for me. This is how a net distributes the weight, how the net of hearts distributes the suffering. Even our dog climbing my wife's lap when she cries is part of the net. And finally, uh, this is we try so hard. We cling to everything clothes, memories, dreams, so tightly when only burning them will warm us. We want so badly to come alive when to do so we must die along the way. And finding love, we want to hide it like a treasure at the bottom of the sea. Instead, life humbles us to be the flag to each other's wind. Oh my, thank you, Mark. Oh, a now, joy to. <laughs> here you are with these thousands, dare I say, <laughs> of poems, and you're figuring out how am I going to group them? How am I going to sequence them? How am I going to create these volumes? H how did you go about it? Well, it's so interesting because for me, the. It's very intuitive. When, when I put a book of poems together, one, one book, I will get all the titles and, uh, and even the poems, if they're not too long, and I'll print them all out. And I will right here in my study, 
I will put them all out on the floor where I can see all of them. And I'll get a cup of coffee. Thank goodness. Stare at them. I'll be in conversation with them. And eventually one will come in the foreground and say, I'm the first one. And another one will say, I'm the last one. And then this, it starts to, in relief, it starts to appear to me, again, using my heart as a Geiger count, not making sense of it, but following what feels true. And so it presents its organic order. And then I'll put them together that way. And it will start to tell me its structure. And so from that, that's also how I've... uh, how I put or actually retrieve and write the nonfiction books. I will have an idea, but I know my idea is just kindling. Like not one book I've written has ever turned out to be the book that happened. And I know that. And, and you know, uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. That's not a frustration. So I will, I will, I feel like I'm an inner explorer and in my movement in the world and with others um, and with nature, I, you know, I take fragments and images and pieces of conversation, things that ring true. And they, I gather them like shells along the shore. And then I will take one at a time and, huh. And, and, you know, like the story of the fish on the shore. And I will take that and be with it and unpack it and and write around it or through it or under it. And then I start to see like a constellation. Oh, this one kind of goes with this one. And then that becomes a chapter. And then so it's like building a mosaic intuitively from the inside out. And so the structure of a book rather than the logical western way that well here's an outline now i'm going to fill the outline no rather than bend the material to my intention i discover and put together all the pieces that feel true and let them tell me what their structure is and their meaning It's unusual, you know, as you said, instead of coming at it with an outline. I I pulled this quote, Mark, that is from a previous conversation you and I had that really stuck with me. I write about what I need to know, not about what I know. And I thought, huh, that's so interesting. Most of the time, you know, if I'm even if I'm working uh, with an author, it's like, well, what do you know? And here you are, you're writing about what you are yearning. To know what's alive in you to know. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that because it's such an unusual approach. Well, because because I have found that, um, and this is one of the reasons I'm blessed to be prolific is is that you know if I wrote about what I know I would have written very little. <laughs> um, but this is the that expression and and you know the book that we did together drinking from the river of light explores this in great depth is the life of expression is one of discovery is one of discovery 
And by being in relationship and inquiry, we grow. And now there is, there is material worth working with to, to grow. And I think this is very much a, a, a point of great discernment in our modern world is that so much of the polarization um, that's going on is that when people's lives are governed by fear, they begin to look only for what will confirm what they already know. And that's not education. Education is, no, open up the door to what I don't know. Let me look at something, you know, new and interesting and that, you know, challenges me. You know, I think it was William James who said, most people, when when they think they're thinking, are merely rearranging their prejudices. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, here's something I'd love to know more about from your life, which is when you were talking about the potted plant and how we can get to this place where, yes, the you know the the pot's too small. What I've found just briefly here, confessionally, in my own life, is that this keeps happening to me. Like I keep having to get, and, and I kind of, I kind of have this thought of like, okay, good. I broke out of that pot. It's over. We did it. Congratulations, Tammy. That was rough, but you're in a new orbit. Thank goodness. And then it happens again. And I'm like, really? And often when I hear you describe your life journey, you'll go back and talk about the cancer journey that you went through. And of course, what a huge gigantic. I don't want to, uh, you know, minimize that in any way. Oh. But what I'm curious about is beyond the cancer journey, as you entered your 40s, 50s, 60s, were there other times where you've had to break out of a pot that was too small? And what was that like for you? Can you share that with me? Yeah, I, I think that the, the, the pots for me after that were more... Um, subtle for me. I mean, my, my way of relating and inquiring into the world has always been constant since then. But my sense of, of being more and more, uh, more and more inhabiting all the things I'm learning about, I mean, I mean, more deeply inhabiting being here. There is no there. There's only here. Um, all that matters is relationship. You know how the, the Dalai Lama has famously said his religion was kindness. Well, I think mine is friendship and, um, and living into that more and more. And so the, the points of, uh, you know, when my, uh, I think going through maybe 10 years ago, a handful of deaths of people who are important to me and, and, uh, going through with my parents. Um, and here's, um, you know, a very small poem, but this is a good example. I could never have written this poem, uh, if I hadn't, 
it's just, you know, when I was younger, I mean, this is a, a very short poem, but this is a lifetime kind of insight into the, uh, the irreparable chasm that was always between me and my parents. And, and, you know, now that they're gone, I can see them more clearly because now that they're gone, they, they don't make so much noise. They made a lot of noise when they were here sure. and it was hard to see them. But this is called life tracks, like railroad tracks, life tracks. My mother taught me how to build a wall. My father showed me how to climb it. They never said so, but they loved the wall and called it home. In time, I grew like a chick in its shell. Inevitably, I cracked the wall to live my life. They never forgave me. So, you know, that was a, a realizing of a, a, I guess, a, a crack in the pot, if you will. Um, you know, I think, I think my parents, who were very intelligent people, first born in America, we had family who died in the Holocaust, they grew up in the Great Depression, very concentrated on survival and very intelligent but literal minded they get a mystical poet for a son you, you know we never spoke the same language we never spoke the same language and so we we had and they they would voice to me things like, there isn't anything you can't do if you give your all. Well, I believed them. But I learned later, they, they said that, but they didn't believe it. So when I came home in my life, acting on that, it challenged decisions they made because they didn't give their all. And they didn't think it mattered. And so if they accepted the evidence of what I was doing, they would have to rethink their decisions or maintain their worldview and reject me. And so that was a lot of what was going on. But I didn't know that till recently. One of the things I'm curious about, Mark, is in your everyday life there in Kalamazoo, what happens like when you think, oh, a poem's coming. I can feel it. I'm hearing a poem. Time to sit down at the desk. Or like, how does it work for you? Well, it works that, you know, my my pattern at home is I'm up early. Su Susan is a night owl. I'm an early morning. So our creative times are at... at the bookends of the day, but I'm up and Zuzu's up, our dog is up with me and I'm here in my study by seven, you know, usually and, and have some good part of the morning just to be and explore. And so, and then in the afternoons, I try to make sure I go out in the world. 
I might, you know, before the pandemic, I would go to a cafe. So I like cafes. I have to, I haven't gotten back to that quite yet, but I make sure I do errands. I make sure I'm balanced and often poems or things that I'm questions I'm carrying will, will suddenly come when I'm out and about. And so I will stop and either dictate it in my phone or scribble, um, you know, pull over on the side of the road and scribble. And um, so I'm, I've always been a lifelong uh, scribbler. And I think it's the way it's the way poets sketch, you know, like artists sketch. It's the way poets sketch. I'm going to read uh, this quote from you where you write about poems as teachers. And you say, I like to say that I retrieve poems more than I author them. The words are the trail of my ongoing conversation with life. There's a Hindu word, upaguru, which means the teacher that is next to you at this moment. And I thought, okay, is there always a teacher next to you? You write, there's always a teacher next to you when we can be present enough with an open heart. The world in all its numinous detail reveals itself as such a teacher. Yeah, I believe I, my experience is there is. I'm not always, uh, I don't get them all. I miss them. I trip over them because we're human. But, but the, the teacher's always there. It's like a radio station that sends, it's always sending the signal, even, even if my receiver has static. And I think this is a, a way to understand functional faith, not faith in a doctrine or, or a person or a sage or a saint, but faith in life is that whatever difficulty I'm going through or confusion or lack of clarity is no reason for me to paint the world that way that you know the 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 gift and the teacher is always there i mean another way to look at that very simply a cloud you know when there's cloud cover the sun's still shining the experience of being under the cloud is real but it's not all of reality and so this is where when i'm half-hearted how do i become wholehearted how do i return and there are so many teachers that you don't have to worry or beat yourself up if you miss one there's another one right behind it okay one final question for you mark i've heard you say as the poet that the real art is becoming the poem becoming the poem and i've got to be honest with you when I heard you say that the first time, I thought, I wonder what he means. Uh, and I'm going to say it again. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is, you know, I and I know I've shared this with you before, that poetry for me is not the words on the page. It's the unexpected utterance of the soul. It is the poem of authenticity within us and between us. So more and more... I, my practice, I want to be committed to being as honest and truthful and real and vulnerable and strong and all of that and the myriad of things that make us human 
um, as best I can and to be there for each other. And that's being the poem. Mark Nepo, author of the new collection of poems called The Half-Life of Angels. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing uh, yourself, the poem that you are, and your good, kind heart, as well as your beautiful writing here on Insights. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you so much. Sounds true. Waking and up if you'd world. like to watch Thanks, Insights at the Edge on video and participate in after-the-show Q&A conversations with featured presenters and have the chance to ask your questions, come join us on Sounds True One, a new membership community that features premium shows, live classes, and community events. Let's learn and grow together. Come join us at join.soundstrue.com. Sounds true. Waking up the world.